Hello and welcome to the Good Old Days of Radio Show. This is John Tefteller, your host. It's Tuesday again, and once again we have a special guest with us, the same special guest we had last Tuesday, uh, Mr. J. David Golden, also known as Dave Golden or David Golden, the legendary early pioneer collector of vintage radio shows. Uh, he told us on our last broadcast that he started collecting vintage radio shows about 1961, 62. Uh, that has to be as far back as I know anybody ever collected old-time radio shows. Um, he is the founder of the Radio Yesteryear Company, the first company to sell vintage radio shows to the public. I remember seeing those ads in Popular Mechanics and uh, different little magazines way back in the 1970s when I was looking for radio shows. Uh, he's been a professional broadcaster since 1963, producer of over 300 LP records, including uh, one that got a Grammy and six other Grammy nominations, and we'll talk about that. I guess we'll just say Welcome to the Good Old Days of Radio Show for round two, Mr. Golden. Hello. Hi, John. I feel a week older, actually. <laughs> well, you are a week older. <laughs> I age quickly on telephones. <laughs> All right. So where we left off last week after uh, 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 playing a Jack Benny show and talking about your uh, lunch with Jack Benny, uh, we left off with you telling how you started the early collecting of transcription discs. I think we got up to about 1965 or so, so we need to move that ahead a little bit with this one, and we're going to listen to an episode of Escape, selected by you. That's going to be our radio show for today, but before we get to that, tell me more about these uh, these these early days of collecting radio transcriptions. You went to a friend's record store. You found some in his basement. You had 200-some uh, episodes of some soap opera that you got someplace else. And then what happened? <laughs> well, I decided to give up a life of crime and go straight. <laughs> uh, it was in um, 19... 71, uh, actually, uh, on the first day of 1971, January 1st, was my last day at CBS. I had uh, resigned. Basically, I think, uh, for financial reasons, I was making more money from radio yesteryear than I was from CBS. And this was a quite difficult decision to make. Uh, all my life, I wanted to be a network radio engineer, and I had finally made it. Uh, and now I was giving it up for money. I ought to be ashamed of myself. Well, wait, wait, wait. I, I, wait, wait, wait. I got to back you up here a minute. In 1971, <laughs> you were making more money selling vintage radio shows than you were working as an engineer at CBS? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. It, it, it's a problem that not many people have. But when when you train all your life to be, say, a stockbroker, and then someone says, well, you're going to be running a butcher shop and making quadruple your salary, you have to do a lot of soul searching. And um, I couldn't find this soul, but I searched nonetheless. Okay, so... All of these radio programs that you were selling in 1971, somehow we skipped the period from 
uh, fishing discs out of the basement of a record store to having enough radio shows to be selling in 1971. How did we get there? Uh, hard work. Okay. Um, uh, it was um, quite a step to hire my first employee, who was the daughter of our next-door neighbor. And by the time, uh, years later, when I sold the company, we had 42 employees, which is quite a payroll to uh, consider. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I, I decided that I wanted to go back and play with old radio shows. Um, by the way, I hope you can't hear my Conquer Spaniel in the background. Oh, we hear him, he, but that's okay. It adds to the flavor of this recording. <laughs> well, I, actually, that's Sparky the Seventh. Oh. That, uh, that is the seventh Conquer Spaniel I've owned since I was a kid named Sparky. And that was one of the few kid shows I liked to listen to. It was on the ABC network, which was WJZ in New York. You're talking about Big and John and Sparky? Exactly so. Ah. Big John, very good, John. Big John and Sparky, uh, the little boy from nowhere who wants to be a real boy. Well, he made it as far as a cocker spaniel. And <clears throat> I, I, um, it, it was the kind of program that just appealed to me. It was just adult enough so that when Sparky asked Big John to go fishing on one episode, uh, and John said, well, what kind of fishing do you want to do? And, and Sparky said, well, I want to do some nuclear fishing, which is the kind of pun <laughs> that is wasted on most people, uh, but appealed to me. So, but wait, wait a minute, now we're, we're getting yeah, off you're, the subject. You're moving around here, but all right, so... From 1965 or so up to 1971, when you quit CBS Radio to sell vintage radio shows full time, where were you acquiring all these vintage radio shows? Um, well, during the interval, I worked at um, the Mutual Broadcasting System in New York uh, and the CBS Radio Network, which I told you about, and also the NBC radio network. Now, it doesn't mean that um, I couldn't hold a job. What it means is most in those days of the uh, engineering staff were hired on a contractual basis for six months at a time. And every six months, there was a huge turnover. And on the day I left NBC, there were 65 other radio engineers cut loose. So when 66 radio engineers start looking for a job at one time, even in a market the size of New York City, it gets difficult. And uh, for, fortunately, I, uh, I got a job right away at Mutual. And I can tell you a funny story about that, or would you like to leave it to some other Well, program? no, no. Tell the funny story about Mutual. Okay, well... <laughs> I applied for a job, and the chief engineer looked at my background. I had a degree in radio, and I had a, a ham license, and um, I had radio experience. And he, sa he said to me, um, can you edit tape? And I said, I love to edit tape. It's, it's one of the things I really do well. And he said, okay, let me give you a test. And he handed me a reel of tape 
and said, on this tape is a one-minute radio commercial for a grocery store, and it's IGA grocery store. And I'd like you to take this reel of a 60-minute, 60 60-second 60 commercial, rather, and cut it down to 30 seconds. Can you do that? And I said, sure, that shouldn't be any problem. Uh, what he didn't tell me, and when I found out, as soon as I listened to it, was that it was a singing commercial. <laughs> and, and as difficult as editing voice is, or I guess sh- I should say was in those days that we used razor blades, um, doing it to music is even more difficult because the meter and the rhythm and the key changes are important. Um, so it wasn't quite as easy as um, I thought it would be. He handed me a razor blade, an editor block, and a stopwatch. I said, okay, turn, turn this into a 30-second commercial, which I did. To, to make a long story short, wait a minute, I'm going to put, I'm going to put my Cocker Spaniel on because she tells a story much better than I do. Oh, well, let's I hear it from the Cocker Spaniel. As a matter of fact, she's better housebroken than I am. So I, I, I passed the test. I edited it, the, the commercial down to 30 seconds, and he said, you're hired. A radio network is not the same as a radio station. Um, basically, at that, at that time, radio networks transmitted mostly news. There was little or no entertainment, especially on, on Mutual. But the people at Mutual were a lot of fun. They, these people had some great stories to tell, and even better, they had great closets mm. filled with um, radio programs that they were willing to share with me. And one of the surprising gifts of radio transcriptions I got was from Bill Stern. The Colgate Shave Cream Man. Exactly. Boy, you're pretty good, John. I I Um, hope so. Bill Stern, (laughs) at at that time, uh, did a a 15-minute sports show. Actually, it was was about 11 minutes, uh, I think, every day. And uh, Bill Stern was a very difficult guy to work with. He had a terrific accident uh, much earlier at which he lost one of his legs and turned into a, a very bitter man addicted to the medicine he was taking. He, he even wrote a book about it. I'm not letting any secrets out. Um, it, it was a qu- quite well-received book. But anyway, Bill was known as a grouch. And I did his show, oh, I think three times a week. And uh, we never really got any closer to each other until I mentioned that I was collecting old radio shows, at which point he said, I have a bunch of transcriptions in my place that uh, I'd be glad to give to you. Just come on over. Uh, he lived in, I think it was New Rochelle or someplace in, in uh, Westchester County. And I drove over to uh, his house. He gave me hundreds of transcriptions. And I think I can safely say that anyone who has ever heard the Bill Stern Colgate Shave Cream Program came from me via Bill Stern. I don't think I'd ever heard one until he gave me almost every damn show that he had done as the, the Colgate Shave Cream Man. His, his main, I think, claim to fame was doing uh, live sports events. 
And uh, one of the other people uh, that I love that mutual, I love to work, work with those people, was um, the, uh, the, the, one of the most famous boxing announcers that ever was known on radio, whose name was Don Dunphy. And Don Dunphy was, the name sounds like a big hulking Irishman, was the nicest, sweetest guy you'd ever want to meet, but put him in front of a micro, microphone at a boxing match, and his descriptions were so accurate and uh, rapid that the boxers couldn't keep ahead of him. He would call the blows as they were happening. Uh, I did one uh, heavyweight championship program with Don. I'm not sure if it was Muhammad Ali or his name before he changed it to Muhammad Ali, but he fought against a Swede. I think his name was... Oh, my. Ingemar Johansson, maybe. I don't recall. But anyway, the fight was in Maine, and I was on the console, which was the main um, output of the various microphones, and Don was next to me calling the blow-by-blow. Blow. Remarkable fellow, really. And he mentioned to me between rounds when a commercial was playing that this is one of the largest audiences ever assembled on Mutual. And I said, well, how do you figure that? And he said, well, there were currently 500 affiliated stations for carrying Mutual at that time. And in addition, it was being broadcast in Canada, South Africa, Australia, and Great Britain. All the English-speaking countries were tuned in, as well as the Armed Forces Radio Service, which meant that there were, according to Don, a half a billion people listening to our program, which was by far the, the largest audience of a program I ever did. And I earned $20 in overtime, too. So there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, okay. I'm, I'm getting off the subject. We're talking about the fun people at Mutual. I made a practice of trying to find out who was in the studios working at NBC and CBS and Mutual who had been around during um, the so-called golden age. I remember once at CBS I was doing a show with Bob Height, who the name may not sound as familiar as Brace Beamer, but he, too, was an announcer on the Lone Ranger program, and he worked for WXYZ in Detroit, and he gave me some goodies, and an announcer at NBC gave me a bunch of um, lights out. Matter of fact, the first one he gave me is probably in everybody's collection. It's called the Coffin in Studio B. Right, and I've heard that one. Uh, uh, that came from Howard Reed through me. Howard Reed was the last staff radio announcer on the East Coast for NBC. He and uh, Fred Collins outlived everybody, and uh, they, fi they finally bought him off uh, and, and just paid his next 10 years' salary and, and said, we don't need you anymore. Um, but Howard was a, was a nice guy, and 
I finally got around to meeting the people who were involved in X minus one that I used to listen to when I was a kid. So, but that's another story. Let's talk about escape. Oh, you well, you're on to escape. But before we do escape, tell your Green Hornet story. <laughs> okay, because it's, it's kind really of green kind Hornet of story. related to escape. At least it's a drama. We're not asking you to tell that during Jack Benny. So, okay, well, um, I, I perhaps promoted this this story more than I should have because it's not about the Green Hornet at all. Oh. It's about one of the actors who performed as the Green Hornet. And it's probably the one that you won't think of because everybody knows who the Green Hornet was played by, uh, but it was played by several people. And this gentleman, whose name was Robert Hall, was working at CBS at the time. And by the way, Robert Hall, if you're old enough to remember Don, I don't think you are, there used to be a chain of clothing stores, at least on the East Coast, called Robert Hall, which was made, uh, famous for having low overhead. And if, if I didn't consider you a friend, I'd sing you the jingle, but I'll, sp- <laughs> well, I'll spare you from that. I'm so, not familiar with that, but then I'm from the West Coast, so. Okay, lucky you. Um, <laughs> all right, so... Um, there was a program on CBS at the time, an interesting kind of show, because although it was considered a network program, it was only heard in cities to which American Airlines flew to. Let me say that again, because it's confusing. It was on the network, but only carried by city in cities, stations in cities, where American Airlines flew to. So American and Airlines was the sponsor then. Actually, yes, actually, uh, it was called Music Till Dawn. American Airlines sponsored it only in those cities that they flew to. And what's even more interesting, it wasn't it was a network show. It wasn't done from one place. Every city had its own host. So, for instance, it was carried in Chicago and someone was the host over there. I loved that program. I used to listen to that show when I was just a pup. And the thing that was nice about it was it was beautiful music. It was classical. It was semi-classical music all night long. It started at midnight and went off at 5 a.m. As a matter of fact, that was the last show I ever engineered at CBS. And I, I walked out the studio door at 5 a.m. on January 1st, uh, my last day in network radio, and I took off my tie, and I said, never again will I wear this symbol of servitude. I removed the tie, and I haven't worn it since 1970. So, anyway, I was given the job of doing music till dawn with Robert Hall, or Bob Hall, as he was called on the air. Bob was uh, the Green Hornet uh, let me let me say approximately from 1943 to 1947. There are people who will have a better idea of the dates than I do. Uh, but he was now doing this program. He had been doing it since 1953. And when I started doing the program, he was dying of cancer. 
and everybody knew it, and he knew it, and uh, didn't make a big fuss about it, but was determined to stay on the air as, as long as his health permitted. So one of the nice things about Music Till Dawn was if you put on a symphony, it would run 25, 30 minutes, and you didn't have to do anything. So Bob and I would talk about the good old days of radio uh, and what it was like to work at WXYZ. And um, I have here a um, death notice that I'd like to read to you if I can find my glasses of Bob Hall. It's, it's very brief. Sure. It says, New Rochelle, New York, Robert Hall, 42 years old, star of the Green Hornet radio program from 1944 to 1947, died yesterday of cancer at New Rochelle Hospital. Hall, announcer for many radio and television programs, had been host of Music Till Dawn on WCBS since it began in 1953. Before coming to New York, he was an announcer for WXYZ Detroit, WHAM and WSAY in Rochester, a couple of other stations, and then it listed his survivors. So um, I don't think uh, he, he, he passed away while I was there, uh, but I did six weeks of his programs, uh, and it was it was fun. It was nice listening to music. It was actually I think I would have paid CBS to be able to do that show because <laughs> I I remembered it so well from when I was a kid, and here I am chewing the rag with the Green Hornet, and not once did he ever call me Cato. So it was a, <laughs> it was a fun experience. <laughs> so that's my Green Hornet story. All right, sort of. So. On last week's uh, episode with you, you said that your favorite comedian was Jack Benny, and we heard a great example of the Jack Benny show, which proves your point. For this week, we have Escape, a show called Evening Primrose. Now, when it came to the dramatic programs, uh, was Escape like your favorite show, or you just picked this because you like this particular show? Uh, I, I frankly don't remember the show very much at all. Oh, well, um, you're going to hear it again uh, in a few minutes. <laughs> yes, I don't mean when I don't mean now. I mean I didn't particularly get a chance to hear it when I was young. I think it went off the air in 1953 or so, yes. which would have put me still in in uh, knee pants. But uh, one of the uh, but it was a great show, no doubt about it. I don't have to uh, uh, tell anybody about Line Engine versus the Ants or Three Skeleton Key or all of the programs that made it famous. It was very well written, very well produced. And this particular program I picked called Evening Primrose was actually written as a story in 1940. <clears throat> Excuse me, I get emotional. Um, and it was first produced on Escape in 1947. And then it was produced in 1948. And then it was produced in 1949. The idea being, this was a good show. And the concept was unique. I had never read anything quite like this. It was about people in New York City who had no homes but lived in department stores. And these people hid during the day, came out at night, helped themselves to dinner and a bed in the bedding department, um, 
it was just an interesting idea. It was well done. It's beautiful radio. And one thing always puzzled me, and I hope some of the sharp-eared listeners can help me on this. There were three female parts on this program. One of them was played by Georgia Ellis, who a lot of people know that name from Gunsmoke. Miss Kitty. Uh, she was Miss Kitty, exactly. Um, which tells you right away that this particular episode originated from the West Coast. Um, another of the ladies on the program was Lois Corbett, who I have no idea about her at all. I wouldn't recognize her voice. The third lady on the program was Ruth Perrett, who to me sounds like she plays four different roles on the show. So as you listen to this program, see if you can pick out Ruth Perrett's repeated appearances at different people. And tell me if I was right in that she quadruples on this program well, or that's, not. That's very possible because many of the act actors and actresses were required to quadruple and double parts and things like that. The only way we would know for sure would be to consult the original script, which does exist, but I don't have access to it. It was in the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters collection, uh, which is now, I believe, the scripts are still at Thousand Oaks Library. I don't think they've moved to the University of Santa Barbara yet, or if they're going to, I'm not sure. But the original script does exist, so if someone could verify this. Well, Vivi Janice was on the show also. I'm not sure I could recognize these different voices, but I had a very close friend at one time who could name almost every actor. His name was Professor Ellie Siegel. And Professor Siegel had a very unique ability. He taught radio and television production. He could look at an LP record with the label covered and tell you what kind of music was being played just by looking at the grooves. I saw him do it, and I was astounded that he could. This was with classical music, too. Yeah. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Okay. And, uh, okay. Anyway, uh, this, this program was done three times in three different years, although a lot of programs like um, Sorry, Wrong Number uh, were done that often. This one, most people don't remember, and I remember it as a kid, primarily from the book. And then uh, later on in my life, when I found this program, I found the radio show was just as good as the book. So let's well, listen. I first heard it about 30, 40 years ago myself when I got a whole series of escape transcriptions put onto reel-to-reel -reel tape for me by Ken Greenwald from Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters. He, they had the CBS West Coast Masters there, and he ran me a whole series of escape shows, and that was one of them. But I haven't heard it since. So we are all going to listen together to Escape Evening Primrose. This is the second airing of it from September 12th, 1948. Here we go. Fed up with the everyday grind. Tired out from the summer heat. Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. 
You are groping through the midnight dimness of a gigantic department store. And suddenly you realize that a hundred eyes are staring at you from the shadows. And a hundred hands are reaching for your throat. And your most urgent desire is to escape. Tonight, we escape to a fantastic world of night dwellers, as John Collier imagines it in his eerie story, Evening Primrose. To death. What do you mean coming in so quiet? Oh, I don't mean to scare you. I thought you'd be asleep. I didn't want to wake you. Oh, Sam, I'm so glad you're home. Hey, what's the matter? Oh, it's terrible. You gotta do something, Sam. What's terrible? It's this. Just look at this. What's terrible about that? Looks like an ordinary pad of paper to me. Yeah, that's just it. That's just what I thought. But it's got writing in it. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, now, wait a minute. Maybe you better tell me what this is all about. Well, Today I went shopping at Bracey's department store. Yeah? I needed some writing paper, so I picked this up. It was on top of the pile. So I bought it and I brought it home. But tonight when I opened it, I, I found it's got writing in it. Well, that's nothing so terrible. Just take it back tomorrow and make him give you a new one. Nah, you don't understand. It's what's written in it that's so terrible. What do you mean, what's written in it? Here, you got to read it. Ah, oh, Sadie, Now, I... right now, now read it. Look, Sadie, I'm tired. I've been bowling all please, evening. Please, I... Sam, please, just read it. But for Pete's sake... Sam! Oh, all right. October 13th. Today, I made my decision. I decided to say goodbye to the world. To get out, leave, break away. And I have done it. Ah, Sadie, Go this... on, read. And now I am free. Really free. Yes, I am free at last. Yes, I am free at last. The world is an intolerable place for a poet. I was broke, starving at my wit's end. And then I had the brilliant idea. I'd escape to a place where I'd had no need to earn a living, where I could write to my heart's content in peace and security. And where is this place? Right under your nose, so close you'd never think of it. I am now living in Bracey's department store. I have everything within arm's reach that anyone would need or desire. And it's all free, absolutely free. I arrived this afternoon. I'd spent three days looking over all the department stores in town. I decided on Bracey's because of the completeness of their food department. Therefore, this afternoon, I entered the store and went immediately to the fourth floor, to the rug department, and hid myself in this dusty, out-of-the-way corner behind a pile of carpets. Once I'm settled, I'll furnish it with the best of modern pieces from the furniture department. It's small, but it'll be cozy enough and safe. After the store closed, I made my first venture out. I tiptoed as far as the stationery counter and got this paper, the writer's primary need. 
Now, after making my first entry, I'll go out and get food. And wine, and the pillows for my bed. And perhaps even a fancy dressing gown. <laughs> this is perfect. Here, I'll be able to write. Dawn, October 14th. I am almost too unnerved to write this. The whole thing is unbelievable. After the store was dark and completely quiet, I crept out and started for the food department. One steps echo hollowly in an empty department store at night, and I found myself gliding along the floor on tiptoe, moving as silently as possible. But the sound of footsteps persisted, and suddenly I realized that they were not my own. The night watchman. I, I was in the Salon Moderne, so quickly I seized a mink coat from a hanger and draped it about my shoulders and stood stock still. I could have reached out and touched him, but he passed without so much as a glance. I started to smile, but the smile froze on my lips. There was someone else here. I was looking straight into a pair of eyes. Large, flat, luminous, inhuman eyes a dozen feet away. They belonged to a creature dressed as a man, but he was as pale as something found under a stone. His hands hanging motionless at his sides looked more like the fins on a fish than human hands. And then he spoke. Not bad for a beginner. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know anybody else uh, lived here. Oh, yes, we live here. It's delightful. We? Yes, all of us. Don't you see? Look around you. I looked around and saw nothing. I looked again and saw an old one come clamoring out from behind a clock. And there were three elderly ingenues, incredibly emaciated, pale as lace, almost transparent, simmering before a perfume counter. And a chintzy lady swam out from the curtains and the drapes. Then they came swarming thick around me. Pale, thin, wispy, moving silently, fluttering like gauze in the wind, whispering. Of course, it's a sign. We see. We see. Detective, send for the dark men. Send for the dark men. They were pressing around me, clawing, holding me, their pale faces contorted with venomous and human hatred. I was paralyzed. All I could do was repeat over and over again, I am not a detective. I, I, I'm not a detective. I, I'm not. A burglar, then. Stop. Let him speak. I, I, I am not a detective or a burglar. I'm a poet. But what are you doing here? Uh, I've renounced the world. I, I came here to live where I could be alone, away from the world. Why, then he's come over to us. He's just like us. He must meet Mrs. Vanderpant. Mrs. Vanderpant, she's coming now. I followed their eyes toward the balcony, and the hair on my neck rose again. There, coming down the wall, like an ancient spider, clamored an old lady, wrinkled and crackled and emaciated. She must have been at least 80, a shadowy matriarch. And the things around me bowed and scraped as she reached the floor and floated toward us. Oh, what's going on here? Where is that stupid girl? What's keeping her? Oh, Mrs. Vanderpant. Well, what is it? Who's this, Mr. Roscoe? Mrs. Vanderpant, may I present Mr... Uh, Mr... Huh? Oh, oh, Snell. Charles Snell. Yes, Mr. Snell. 
He's a poet. He has come here to live. Oh, he has, has he? That's what he says. And I believe him. Well? He avoided the night watchman quite neatly. For a beginner. <laughs> Thank you. Very well. We shall see. <laughs> a poet should find inspiration here. Mr. Snell, Mrs. Vanderpant is our grand old lady. Oh? I am quite the oldest inhabitant here, Mr. Snell. Three mergers and a complete rebuilding. But they didn't get rid of me. Oh, where is Ella? Where is my broth? She's bringing it, Mrs. Vanderpant. It will come. Terrible little creature. Uh, she's our foundling, Mr. Snell. Uh, she's not quite our sort. Oh, is that so? I have been here, Mr. Snell, ever since the terrible times of the 80s. I was a young girl then, a beauty, they said. I'm sure. And poor Papa lost his money. Braces meant a lot to a young girl in those days. So when I wasn't able to have a charge account, I came here to live. That's better than a charge account. I was quite alarmed when others began to come after the crash of 1907. Oh, but it was the dear judge, the uh, hello. colonel, Mrs. How do you Bilby. Do? How are you? Uh, Mrs. Bilby writes plays. Oh? And uh, comes of an old Philadelphia family. You'll find us quite nice here, Mr. Snell. I, I, I'm sure I will. And, uh, of course, our dear young people came in 1929. Their poor papas jumped from skyscrapers. They couldn't bear to be without charge accounts either. But uh, you mean all these nice people live here? Oh, and many more. You shall meet them all later. Oh, here comes Ella with my broth. Uh, come here, you stupid thing. Mrs. Vanderpant is waiting, Ella. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'm coming as fast as I can. Oh, here. On the table over there, Ella. Now be careful. Don't spill it. Oh, but she's young. Well... Of course, she is a little younger than most of us. She, She's different. She's beautiful. That's right, old fellow. She's really not our sort. Oh, you, you shouldn't say such things. She can hear you. Oh, that doesn't matter. Mrs. Bilby, please. Uh, Mr. Snell, you will understand these things better after you've been here for a while. But uh, it seems to me Mr. That... Snell, we have certain rules here. They are necessary for our survival. I'm sure you won't find it hard to observe them. Well, yes, but I... I should advise you that you try. If you do not, it would be most unfortunate, Mr. Snell. Most unfortunate for you. October 15th. You can imagine my feelings last night. My first thought was to escape as quickly as possible. In fact, I planned to quit my hiding place and mingle with the crowds and leave Bracey's forever. But just at dawn, Mr. Roscoe brought me a cup of coffee, which must have been drugged, for I fell asleep. And when I awoke, I found that I'd slept all day, and night was closing over the store once more. Later. I have spent my second night here, I saw Ella again. Ella, the pearl of this remote 
fantastic cave. She's not like the others. A, a trifle pale, but otherwise normal and human and... and beautiful. A child of perhaps 18. She is the only thing that makes this nightmare bearable. October 20th. Escape seems almost impossible. There is a very effective burglar alarm system, and the doors are all carefully guarded. But that is nothing compared to the dark men. Who are the dark men? I don't know, but the inhabitants here threaten any transgressor with these dark men. I shall try to discover who they are. I am sure I'm watched, though they've begun to trust me now. Speaking to the night watchman would be suicide. Even if he believed my fantastic story or didn't shoot me as a burglar, I'm convinced that neither Ellen nor I could get out of here alive. She and the night watchman are the only real people here. And how the others hate the night watchman. Odious, vulgar creature. He reeks of the coarse sun. Oh, come now, Mrs. Bilby. He's really a very personable young man. Very young for a night watchman. Mr. Snell, sometimes I wonder about your taste. Oh, you must not stay so much to yourself. You must become better acquainted with our ways. That's quite true, old man. Oh, you must come to the play tonight. We're going to be entertained with one of Mrs. Bilby's tragic comedies, Love in Shadowland. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm, I'm sure I will. Oh, it's really a festive occasion, you know. Wanamaker's is coming over. Wanamaker's? Yes, the entire colony over at Wanamaker's is coming here en masse to attend the play. You mean there are people living in other stores? Oh, dear, yes, didn't you know? Of course, the best people live in Bracey's and Wanamaker's. Oh, come now, Mrs. Bilby, there are some very nice people at Altman's. I beg your pardon, Mrs. Bilby. Uh, hello, Ella. Oh, good evening, Mr. Snell. Well, what is it, Ella? Oh, please, ma'am, I'd so love to see your play tonight. May I have your permission? Certainly not. You know better than that, you stupid creature. You know where you belong. In the basement, by the garbage cans. But Mrs. Bilby... Hush, Mr. Snell. Ella, you're becoming entirely too forward of late. I advise you to watch your step. Remember the dark men. Oh, no. Please, Mr. Roscoe. I'll be good. I promise I will. Oh, no, please don't send for the dark man. I'm sorry, Mrs. Bilby. Excuse me. Ella. Ella, come back. Charles, you forget yourself. Let her go. But how can you treat her like that? Why do you always frighten her? And what is all this about the dark men? Well, Mr. Snell, oh, I... Oh, please, Mr. Roscoe, not now. You'll spoil our whole evening, and I do so want Mr. Snell to enjoy my play. Very well, Mrs. Bilby. Later, Charles. But I want to know about the dark men. Later, later. October 21st. I found an opportunity to speak to Ella alone. I had not dared to speak to her before. Here one has the sense always of pale eyes secretly watching. But last night at the play, I induced a fit of hiccups. As I anticipated, I was sternly reprimanded and told to go and secret myself in the basement where the night watchman wouldn't hear me. This was exactly what I'd planned. I went to the basement. And there, in the darkness, among the garbage cans and the rats, I heard sobbing. <laughs> Ella? Ella? Oh. Ella, is that you? Yes. Why are you crying? What is it, Ella? They... 
They wouldn't even let me see the play. Oh, is that all? Oh, Mr. Snell, I, I'm so unhappy. Oh, there, there. You mustn't cry. You're the only one. The only one who is kind. Ella, why are you here? Why do they treat you so differently? Because I'm not like them. I didn't choose to come here. You mean you were held prisoner? Yes. You see, I was only six. I came here on a shopping tour with my mother. I, I got lost and fell asleep behind a counter. It was dark when I awoke, and they found me. Some of them wanted to send for the dark men because they were afraid I would tell on them. But Mrs. Vanderpant said no. I could stay and be her maid. I've been here ever since. Since you were six? But haven't you ever tried to get away? Oh, no. I don't know anything about out there. I wouldn't know what to do. Besides, I'm afraid to take the chance. If anyone tries to get out, they send for the dark men. Ella, who are the dark men? Don't you know? Oh, it's horrible. Tell me. You know how people live in all the stores, at Gimbel's and Bloomingdale's? Yes, yes, I know. Well, the dark men live at the Undertaker's. Good heavens. And whenever someone dies or breaks the rules, or when a burglar gets in and sees these people and might tell, they send for the dark men. That's horrible. They put the body in the butcher shop and the food department, and then the dark men come. I saw them once. It was terrible. What do they do? They go in where the dead person is. They have wax with them and all sorts of things. And when they're gone, there's just a wax model left on the counter. Then our people put a frock on it or a bathing suit and mix it up with all the other wax models in the windows. And nobody ever knows. Ellie, you mean all these dummies are... Oh, no. At least... Not all of them, but if you displease these people, the same thing might happen to you. October 30th. I've not kept up my journal. Writing has been out of the question. Once more, I'm frozen with terror. Not for myself now, but for Ella. They hate her. Any time they might turn against her and send her to the dark men. My mind is filled with her. I dream of her every day. I live to see her at night. We've managed it several times. They, they trust me now and let me roam about without interference. And finally tonight, I met her again and said it. Ella, I love you. Charles. I, I love you, Ella. Let, let's get married, or, or whatever they do here, and then we can live together in my home in the carpet department. They, they wouldn't dare hurt you then. Oh, Charles. Oh, don't look so dismayed. If you like, we'll go away from here. Maybe we can get transferred to Bergdorf Goodman, overlooking Central Park. Don't, Charles, don't. You must. Oh, but I love you. Ella, you're not in love with someone else. Oh, Charles. Yes, I am. But who? I... I thought you hated them all. Oh, it must be Roscoe. He's the only one that's young enough. Oh, no, Charles, not Roscoe, especially not him. 
Oh, I do hate them all. They make me shudder. Well, who is it then? It's he. Who? The night watchman. No, it's impossible. Oh, I love him. He smells of the sun. Ella. Oh, it was wonderful, the way it happened. Don't tell on me, Charles, or they'll punish me. Oh, no, no. I was careless. And there he was, coming around the corner in the ladies' lingerie department. I was caught. There were only some wax models in their underthings. There was nothing else to do. I slipped off nightdress and stood still. <clears throat> I see. He stopped near me. He looked at me. And, oh, Charles, he spoke to me. He said, say, honey, I wish they made them like you on 8th Avenue. Oh, Charles, wasn't that a lovely thing to say? Personally, I should have said Park Avenue. Oh, Charles, don't get like these people here. It doesn't matter what avenue, Charles. It was just a lovely thing to say. But what can you do about him, Ella? He belongs to another world. Yes, to 8th Avenue, and I want to go there. Charles... Are you really my friend? Oh, yes, yes, of course I am. Then I'll tell you. I'm going to stand there again in the lingerie department so he'll see me. And then? Perhaps he'll speak to me again. Oh, Ella, you're only torturing yourself. Oh, no, because this time I shall answer him, and he'll take me away. Take you away? Oh, oh no, 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 Ella, I, I, I couldn't bear that. You don't love him. You only think you do because you think he'll take you out of here. But but you don't know that he will. And I will, Ella. I, I've made up my mind. No, Charles. I couldn't let you do it. Even if I loved you, you couldn't do it, Charles. Why not? Because you really belong here. You've become one of them now. Ella. Ella, you mustn't say that. It's true. And, Charles. What? I've got to go. There's someone... Watching us, I, I feel it. Wait, Ella. Goodbye, Charles. No, Ella, come back. Ella. Please, old fellow, you'll arouse the night watchman. Roscoe. Yes? Love can be very upsetting, can't it? You heard? Just the last moment or so. Very touching. I was rather surprised. And yet it's understandable I've been attracted to Ella myself. We're still young, you know. <laughs> and so she loves another... Too bad, old fellow. Who could it be? Could it be that I am the cause of your heartbreak? You flatter yourself too much, Roscoe. Then who? The old judge? Mm, certainly not. The colonel? Hardly. None of those. Not one of the customers. The staff? She loves the night watchman. Can you imagine that? She loves the night... Oh. Uh, Roscoe, I... I, I shouldn't have said that. It, it, it's not true. At least I don't think it's true. You, you wouldn't... You, you said you loved her, too. You, you wouldn't do anything... Tell anybody. Uh, this is a secret between us, between friends, isn't it? Of course, old man. As secret as the grave. She's young. Perhaps he'll leave and she'll forget him. In time, who knows? Perhaps she will learn to love you or me. Of course, in time. And we'll figure a way to keep her safe here. Absolutely safe. Now, don't you worry about it. Well, it's almost dawn. Time for bed. Good morning, Charles. Uh, 
Early evening, November the 4th. I was a fool. I should have known he couldn't be trusted. He must have gone straight to Mrs. Vanderpant. This evening, the atmosphere has changed. People flicker to and fro, smiling nervously, horribly with a sort of frightened, sadistic exultation. An informal dance in the record department's been called off. And I can't find Ella. I'm going out again now to look for her. Roscoe, what have you done with her? Quiet, quiet, old chap, the night watchman. I don't care. What have you done with her? Whatever I did, I did for your own good as well as the good of us all. Wait a minute. What is that? What are those people carrying? What? Why, it's Ella. She's tied up. They're carrying her. Ella! Ella! Stop it, Joel! Stop it! Let me go! Let me go! Stop, Joel! Stop it! You arouse the night watchman. But they're taking her into the butcher shop! Ella! 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 Yes, Charles. Those are the dark men. Midnight. I'm scribbling this last entry hurriedly. They are in there in the butcher shop with Ella. The dark men. There's only one thing to do. I'm going to find the night watchman and tell him. He and I will save her if we can. And if we're overpowered, well, I will leave this pad on the stationery counter. Tomorrow, if I live, I, I will recover it. If I do not, whoever finds this and reads it, look in the windows. Look for three new wax dummies. Two men, one rather sensitive looking, and a girl. She has blonde hair and blue eyes, and her nose turns up a little. Look for us, and then find them. Smoke them out. Exterminate them. Avengers. Find them, smoke them out, exterminate them. Avengers. Oh, Sam. Isn't it horrible? We gotta do something. Tell somebody something. Oh, Sam, what'll we do? Do? Nothing. Go to bed. Oh, but Sam... Whoever wrote this has sure got a weird sense of humor, hey? Probably some clerk down at Bracey's ought to be fired. You... You mean you think it's just a story? Are you kidding? You don't believe this stuff, do you? Well, I... I don't know. I I just thought... Yeah, forget it, baby. Snap out of it. I shouldn't leave you alone. You get too many ideas when I go bowling at night. Oh, Sam. Sam, don't you think maybe we ought to just take it back and show somebody? Nuts. It's not worth the bother. They'd laugh at you, baby. Think you were crazy or something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I was silly. Forget it. Come on, let's go to bed. I'm tired. Sure, Sam. <laughs> Golly, you know, for a while I was sure scared. I even forgot what I was going to tell you. What? Sam, I found the cutest dress today, only $19.95. Yeah, baby? Yeah. It was in the window at Bracey's. It was on a beautiful little wax model with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a sort of turned-up nose, and, and there were... Two men standing. Sam! So, so, 
Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Tonight, we have brought you Evening Primrose by John Collier, adapted for radio by John Dunkel. Featured in tonight's story were Bill Conrad as Charles and Constance Cavendish as Ella. With Harry Bartell, Lillian Bayef, Jeff Corey, Kay Miller, and Irene Tedrow. Special music by Ivan Dittmar. Next week. When you've had all you can stand of routine. When your everyday chores offer you no release. When the four walls are closing in on you. Join us for Escape. Next week, we escape with another great story by one of the world's outstanding authors. Good night, then, until this same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape! Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, were they mannequins in the windows, or were they real people? Hmm. Well, the younger ones were boyakins and girlikins. <laughs> it was only the big ones that were mannequins. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and we are here with Dave Golden. We're talking about uh, vintage radio and uh, the show Escape. Um, this was one of your favorite episodes. I, I can see why. It's very good. I remember it from years ago. I wasn't quite sure where it was going as I was listening to it, but then I got, then I remembered it just before it ended. Um, it was different from many of the escape programs, which were action, movement, conflict, war, hitting, biting. This was different. It was a tale a little calculated. <laughs> well, yeah, we didn't do suspense, but we've done a lot of suspense on this podcast, so um, it's good to get into escape on occasions. Um, let's let's move this forward a little bit. Where we left off, uh, you were in about nineteen late nineteen sixties. You were gathering all these radio programs, and you told some of those stories. Then you get up to about 1971. What made you decide to launch the idea of selling vintage radio programs through ads and popular mechanics and things like that? Uh, that was uh, before 1971. I started advertising, I'm sure, somewhere between 1962 or so. Um, but uh, and at, in the beginning, <laughs> when, when I tried to create Heaven and Earth, in the beginning, I couldn't afford uh, large ads, and the smaller ads seemed to be as effective uh, until uh, I, I was getting competition. People were selling these programs cheaper than I was, but I was selling them in better quality, but I was charging more. So you had two markets, a bargain market and then a deluxe market, which I was trying to fill. As time went on, the ads got bigger, and the budget for them got bigger. Uh, if I say, how much do you think an ad in TV Guide cost back in the days that they published TV Guide, the first thing you would ask is, well, what city are you talking in? Because TV Guide was different in every city that had a different television uh, market. And the answer was plenty. Uh, an ad 
in a large market like New York or Philadelphia, it would cost upwards of fifty thousand dollars. Now that's that's an amount that a person writes with a shaking hand signing the check. Uh, because after spending that kind of money, you have to hope that you get enough money in to break even at least, but that takes time, and then you have to, of course, ship the product. All of this is, is a terrific uh, drain on your capital, and it's scary. One or two disastrous ads in a publication, oh, such as uh, the Saturday Evening Post, or the New Yorker, which was quite effective, uh, would cost thousands, literally thousands. And one of the most effective publications, and you can snicker here or there, was the scientific, uh, excuse me, not the scientific, I meant the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer has an extremely, whatever you think about Elvis coming back from space or, or, or three-headed babies in the basement, the National Enquirer people are very mail-order responsive. And so it, it's very cut and dry. You're either making money or you're not making money, and it takes just about a month and a half to tell the difference. Uh, does that explain why there were small ads in the beginning? Yes, it does. But you found that there was enough people across the United States that either grew up listening to vintage radio shows or were somehow interested in them, you found enough people to support a large and growing business, apparently. Uh, yes, uh, the, the number of people on our mailing list averaged about 200,000. Uh, we would kick people off the mailing list if they didn't buy something after they received six mailings. And I'm a graduate of Black and Blue U. It, it was a, a business that I never intended to eat, uh, enter. I was a radio engineer. What am I doing in the direct mail business? And then, of course, I found myself in the record-producing business and then in the video cassette-producing business. And, and this was getting away I, from me. I, I didn't want to be a successful businessman. I wanted to be a retired businessman. Well, I find, I, it, I find it amazing that you actually had 200,000 people on a mailing list for old-time radio shows. That is a number that could never, ever be duplicated today. Well, look at that number carefully now, John. I didn't say there were 200,000 buyers. Right. There were 200,000 names of people who were interested in the product. Right, that's and what it was, I mean. It yeah. was a, it was up to me to try and get them hooked to buy something. And hooked isn't the right word. I always gave value for value received. One of, one of the better marketing ideas I had was to give away a free LP record. And I would buy ads in magazines and newspapers and say, hey, are you interested in old radio programs? Would you like a free record to listen to them on? This was, of course, in the days when people had records. Now, how do you afford to send people an LP record just to get them interested? Well, I'll tell you the secret. You used an Evertone flex sheet. These are, I don't know if you remember them, since people don't use phonographs much anymore, but these were flexible pieces of plastic about the size of a napkin, 
that would fit on a turntable, and you could play them. They sounded just fine. Yeah, the, and the, they can, those are th yeah, I know what those are. I see, I see those around occasionally. Uh, mostly in old uh, publications, because I don't think enough people listen to phonograph records today to make something like, like that worthwhile. But for, oh, six or seven cents for the record, uh, I could... Uh, say that you can have a free record sample. And they would play for about 10, 15 minutes of uh, excerpts from some of the better shows. You went from selling reel-to-reel -reel or cassettes, I guess, but either one or both, into LPs. When did you produce your first LP? Uh, that's a good question. I, I didn't produce the first LP. I, I put it together, or I guess I produced it, for a book club, and it was called Themes Like Old Times, okay. which many people have heard of. Sure. It was the openings of 90 different radio shows. That's the part many people remember. I, I, saw, I sold this to a book club and my mailing list, and it was, uh, came to the attention of a big Hollywood producer. <laughs> he must have been at least six foot five. No, he <laughs> I sold the record after uh, the book club to a record company called Viva Records that uh, was distributed by Dot Records and Decca Records. And we sold quite a few of those records. As a matter of fact, it hit number 23 on the charts. That's now the LP record charts, not the single LP record charts. And guess what? I was cheated. And I learned a very interesting lesson that nobody in the record business tells the truth. They look you right in the eye and say, two and two is five, your check is in the mail, and don't mean it. So I, I sold quite a few records of that Viva record, didn't get very much money for it, but it, it got me introduced to Columbia Records. And Columbia Records I produced three records for. The first one I produced was nominated for a Grammy, which was uh, W.C. Fields and Charlie McCarthy on radio. Okay. Uh, the the um, head of the production department was named Bruce Lundvall at the time. He was uh, later became a vice president. Um, very nice fellow. And uh, the first record I did for him, uh, it won a Grammy. Guess how many records it sold? How many? How much do you think a Grammy-winning record would sell? How many? Well, you would think it'd be a million. You <laughs> dream on. Yes. The answer, the answer is, I don't know. Because after being cheated by, by Decca and by Dot and by Viva and by Columbia, I said, what am I doing in this business? They're all filled with knaves and jackals. So I'm going to produce records now for myself. And that was the birth of Radiola Records in 1970. And I started producing, oh, I think, two or three records every other month or something like that. Producing a record is not easy. It's difficult to do even after you get an acceptable master tape. It's a complicated process, which I learned to do all myself so I could have uh, quality control. If, if you ever listen to a radio or record, 
one thing becomes apparently apparent right away, and that is each record plays for a full hour. Now, how the heck do you get a half an hour on one side of an LP record? You make the grooves uh, smaller. You may very good. You use something called variable pitch density. Uh, you have a computer deciding how big the excursion of the cutting needle is. It's getting technical, and uh, I don't think many people are interested because it's a lost art these days. But after cutting the lacquer, uh, which I would do myself, by the way, um, I supervise three-step processing. You have to make masters, mothers, stampers. You have to produce artwork and copy for the jackets, do four-color separations for the covers. In other words, uh, it's not like baking a loaf of bread uh, that, you, that you can knock out in a couple of hours or whatever it takes. I don't know. I never made bread. Uh, but but uh, it's, it's a long, tedious process. And to produce three or four records is almost a month's work. So producing, you, you produced, I'm sorry, go ahead. You produced 300 LPs, and in a previous message to me, you said the best one that you produced never got heard. What was that? Ah, that's a secret. If I tell you, I have to kill you. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> You're a brave man. Okay. Um, before I tell you, I'll, I'll make this as short as possible. Um, there was a gentleman that you've probably never heard of, and I never did either, named Art Moger. Art Moger was an advertising man in Boston. And Art Moger was a guest on the Fred Allen Show in 1938. Uh, he was a personal friend of Fred, who also was from the Boston area. And Art Moger's son was named Stan Moger. And I met Stan Moga, who was very interested in old radio programs. Stan was the gentleman who brought back the Mickey Mouse Club uh, after its initial run. He resyndicated it and made a lot of money. He was the one who imported Masterpiece Theater uh, during the 1960s and 70s. Um, he, he was a media buyer, a very type A alpha personality, always on the go, always with schemes that most of the time worked out. So uh, just as an example, for uh, when, when Dan Seymour died, very famous announcer, I'm sure you know his voice, Stan was a friend and got together a whole bunch of friends for the memorial ceremony and hired me to produce a tribute record for the people at the funeral. Uh, as a matter of fact, I didn't even charge him anything because I was a big fan of, of, of uh, Dan Seymour also. Uh, but that was the kind of thing he was always coming out with. And he came out with an idea to do a record, not, not an Epitone sound sheet, but a regular LP record that would be offered to the readers of Advertising Age magazine, which is a trade publication for the advertising business. I read it once, and it's pretty boring, but unless you're interested in television and radio advertising. Uh, Stan hired me to do this record. He paid me what I thought was an exorbitant amount of money. Don't ask me how much. 
to do a project that he called the 100 best radio commercials of all time. And I said to Stan, well, you're close, but that'll never work. For one thing, who's going to decide which are the best 100 radio commercials of all time? And how are you going to get 100 radio commercials on one record? And he said, yeah, you're right, Dave. What do you suggest? And I said, instead of the 100 best radio commercials of all time, I'm going to do something for you called, are you ready for this? <laughs> well, I did something called Seems Like Old Times, and I did a similar record, which I'm not going to name for. But I did a similar record with radio commercials. Now, you can get very creative with radio commercials because they're very creative to begin with, at least many of them are. And there have been compilations of radio commercials where you present a, a radio commercial such as Lucky Strike, and you'll have a Lucky Strike tobacco auctioneer. Or you'll have a radio commercial of um, Doan's Pills or Carter's Little Liver Pills or Pepsi-Cola or any of the other multitude of products that were advertised. So I decided to put together, instead of the 100 best, a hundred commercials into a symphony using musical commercials, uh, using short two-second commercials. For example, do you remember a commercial for years in the 1930s and 40s that only had one sentence? Quick, Henry, the flit. The Does flit, that sound familiar? Well, the flit was the thing you pumped to get rid of insects or whatever. Exactly so. It was a pump handle that you... Uh, squirted at insects, but their commercials always were short, like two seconds, and were the one slogan that made, they made famous, Quick Henry the Flit. Okay. They never told you who Henry was or, or <laughs> what happened after he got the flit. But that was the kind of thing I did. There were, there were oh, I would say maybe 10 singing commercials for Coca-Cola that if you played them, you would say, oh, yeah, I remember that one. And if you blend all of the Coca-Cola commercials into a symphony, well, you get something really interesting to listen to. And that's what I did. I don't remember how many commercials I used. I don't think it was quite uh, 100. But there were commercials that were famous, and there were commercials for products that were really off the wall. For, for example, do you remember ENDS? E-N-N-D-S. No. Nah, nobody remembers ENDS. It was advertised, I think, on, on uh, Meet Millie. And those commercials were on 5253 on CBS. It was an internal deodorant. You took an ENDS <laughs> tablet. <laughs> oh, I think, is this an off-the-wall product? Like, this is the kind of thing you just mentioned. And... Uh, it tickles your funny bone. Plus, I added commercials for products that were ruled illegal, such as um, opium-containing medicines. And uh, Colonel, what's it, Colonel Brinkley, Jack Brinkley's goat glands commercials. <laughs> and uh, Painless Parker. Now, you don't remember Painless Parker because you're not old enough. But <laughs> Painless Parker was a chain 
of dentists in the New England area. Assumably, Mr. Parker started it. I don't know. But Painless Parker, if you listen to his 15-minute commercial, would give you a certificate good for one filling or one extraction for only $2. And, of course, Painless Parker was painless. So they said. So most people have never heard a commercial from Painless Parker. Or uh, I think maybe perhaps more uh, familiar is uh, Crazy Water Crystals, which is still being sold today. You can buy Crazy Water on Amazon. And I take Crazy Water upon occasion. It's a great product. <laughs> you want to know what it is? <laughs> okay, what is it? <laughs> well, I'll bite. Well, it'll cute. It'll cure anything from fallen arches to cancer. At least that's what they claimed before they were stopped. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> its main claim to fame is it's a great laxative. Oh. And it's good. It's, it's highly mineralized water. I found it in Mineral Wells, Texas, where the crazy hotel is still open. And you can go in and get glasses of crazy water. And in the main ballroom, one wall is totally lined with toilets. So you know it's an effective uh, product. So anyway, to get back to the subject, so I did this record, and I played it back, and I thought, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's a, it's a record I'm really proud of. I can hardly wait to give it to Stan, Stan Moger, who paid me to do it. So I sent the record, actually it was a cassette. I hadn't taken it any further than the master tape. I had the master tape at 15 inches per second on a 10 inch reel, two of them. And I made a, a test cassette for Stan and sent it to him. And he called me up after receiving it and said, Dave, that's great, I love it, let's go with it. I said, okay, great. What do you want me to do with the master? And Stan said, I'll let you know. Well, six months later, I said to Stan, what would you like me to do with the master? And Stan said again, I'll let you know. Well, this went on for several years. Stan died, oh, I think about four years ago. He was one of those hyperactive persons. I'm really surprised he lasted that long of a heart attack, as I predicted. And Stan remains the only one who has ever heard this record. And I wrote to Advertising Age, which is still published, I think by a different publisher. I told them the story and said, listen, I have this master tape since about 1975 or 1976, I forget when. You paid for it. You own it. What would you like me to do with the master tape? And they never answered me. So you still so have it? I still have it, yes. Uh, I still have a bottle of crazy water in the kitchen on ice. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's it's good stuff. Look it up on Amazon. Crazy uh, water. It's, yeah, crazy water. It, it, it's inexpensive, but it's very uh, expensive to ship because it's heavy. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, we finished with the record that only one person has ever heard. Well, I guess me. so. So I guess no one's ever going to hear it, huh? You know, I don't know. I would have liked to let it get out. Do you think Vermeer would paint something and then have nobody see it? Wouldn't he be upset? I would be. 
if, if Edison had invented the light bulb and said, wow, look how it lights up the laboratory here, and then nobody else saw it, bought it, or wanted it, I think Mr. Edison would be ticked. And Mr. Edison was not in a good humor when he was ticked, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> so that's the story of the record that you wanted to know. Okay. Um, now well, I'll tell you about Santa Claus. No, go ahead. Santa Claus. Well, okay. So, so we're never going to hear it is the point. I, <laughs> yes. Yes, okay. you're never going to hear I don't know what's going to happen after I die. I think I'm going to lose interest in it. Probably. Maybe your wife will allow someone else to hear it at some point. It could be, but you'll have to take a Cocker Spaniel along with it. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this edition of the Good Old Days of Radio Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with Mr. Golden, and we're going to continue on with another great radio show and some more great stories from his life and career as the legendary purveyor of vintage radio programs. This is John Tefteller and the Good Old Days of Radio Show. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.